Greetings and welcome to Mental Health Trailblazers, Psychiatric Nurses Speak Up. I am your host, Andreas Kasai, and you are listening to Season 2 of the SAMHSA Minority Fellowship Program at the American Nurses Association's podcast, where we spotlight MFP fellows and alumni and their pioneering work to improve health outcomes for marginalized communities. We have so much to explore, so let's get started. So welcome, Dr. Thomas. Thank you very much for making time from your busy schedule to be with us today. I wanted to start by please asking you to introduce yourself to our audience. Hi, thank you, Andreas. It's um, my pleasure to talk with you again. For the listening audience, I would introduce myself as an Indian American slash global citizen, a lifelong learner with diploma disease, a yogi, a lover of art, music, dancing, and the water. Professionally, I was a licensed social worker for five years, a nurse for the past 22 years, and for 10 of those years, I've been an advanced practice uh, nurse practitioner. And since, as you mentioned, since September of last year, I am PhD prepared. And I took the call to enter academia a few months ago, and now I'm a newly appointed professor at Nova Southeastern University. Asaf College of Nursing for the Graduate Psych Nurse Practitioner Program. And since I'm not a psych nurse practitioner, I am teaching the core courses of advanced pathophysiology, advanced health assessment, and so forth. I'm curious to learn more about your journey and how your personal story begins as a first-generation immigrant from India. What was it like growing up in the United States? Oh, good memory. I I am a first generation Indian. I came at about age three and hence uh, didn't get to keep the sexy Indian accent. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I grew grew up in Pennsylvania and Ohio, but was raised by my Indian parents and I would say my two older siblings as well. And it felt like inside the home was little India and outside was the Midwestern countryside. I'm grateful for growing up with clean, fresh country air, picking berries and playing in a big yard and also trips to India and family summer road trips across the states to get more familiar with the U.S. But there were challenges, too. It's not it's not their fault, really, as they were probably emulating what they heard their parents say or what they heard about foreigners or India on the news. But I was mistreated and bullied by some of my classmates and neighbors on a daily basis growing up. On a daily basis? On a daily basis. What kind of comments or what kind of things did they throw at you? Oh gosh, I am over most of all of that, Andreas. I can't really even tell you the details. I went back for a reunion and one of the people who used to bully me every day that I walked into school actually came and apologized to me. And I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. And then afterwards, I reflected and I remembered, but I had truly gotten over it and had nothing against her. That was very interesting because it took me, I don't know if it's because I'm getting old, it was my memory, but I just, I think I truly like forgave her and just had really forgotten about it. But there was all kinds, I mean, I could tell you stories from being called dirty and why doesn't your skin get clean to microaggressions. My mother would never actually send me for a sleepover and I never understood why I think it was cultural. I remember the first sleepover I went to, I was the last one to wake up and I woke up to somebody hovering over me doing something crude. 
No, I don't think that's what she was thinking, but I think it was just more cultural knowing that your child is safe and always with you and and things like that. It's not really customary in India to have sleepovers unless it's your family. The other tough part was my best friend used to invite me to go on summer vacation with her and her family every summer. And she was very persistent. And every summer my parents said no. (laughs) And it wasn't necessarily that it was overlapping with our summer vacations where we traveled around, but it was just not culturally accepted to go away like that without family, I guess. Yeah, concerns for your safety, real or imagined. How did you end up entering the world of nursing? So I entered the world of nursing sort of in a very circuitous way. Mm -hmm. I didn't have direct family members that were nurses. We had some doctors in the family. My grandfather was a doctor. Actually, my grandmother was a nurse midwife. But I didn't really think about it in that way. I thought about it more of her as a village midwife. And so I was actually gearing to be more pre-med and doing something like a summer externship before I went to college to get me ready for that. And then I also was pre-med in my liberal arts program. And then I realized that I just it just didn't really sync with me. Mm-hmm. And so I went to a sociology class and I loved it. I ended up being a social worker, but there were a couple of nurse practitioners that I met and I had never heard of a nurse practitioner or known what that was. But I was doing a volunteer year after college in Arizona and I met this public health nurse practitioner and I thought, wow, you can do that, serve the underserved and have a personal relationship, but also practice population health. And then eventually I decided that I would do the second degree in nursing, which would only, well, in science with a major in nursing, which would only take me like two years because I already had a four-year bachelor's in sociology. And so after five years of practicing in total, I started nursing school and that's how I got into nursing. You mentioned bullying and being called out for your cultural, racial, ethnic heritage growing up. Was that something that followed you as you went through higher education and into the workforce? Did that present a challenge, your identity, especially within the U.S. context? That's that's interesting you mentioned that. I mean, I do think that, for one, I've internalized in a positive way how to manage some of the things that happened to me. And so I I feel like I am a little bit more protective of the underdog, so to speak. And so I look for opportunities to look out for others. And being Indian and having Indians call me American and Americans call me Indian, it's kind of like being sort of a mixed race without being a mixed race. So your identity is sort of strange, but I was really oversensitized to micro and macroaggressions. I always noticed when people were watching me in a store, seeing if I was going to shoplift, I'd go in with a white girlfriend or who looked like a white girlfriend, and they'd be all eyes on me to see if I was going to bag something. And I was just talking to somebody recently that even in different work environments, 
even if there is diversity in leadership, that when you're a minority, you seem to have to let go the extra mile anyway, that you have to kind of like show up 200% to get the same sort of benefits or recognition of your white counterparts or fair skin counterparts. I think a lot of it is not just systemic racism, but somatic. We've internalized it. Yes. And so as minorities, we also have to be super conscious of how that plays out, and myself included, to others and being really aware of our body language and just how the system and the culture and multiple cultures have emphasized that fair is beautiful, that light is the way versus dark is evil. And I facilitated actually not too long ago, a yoga session and had some meditations prior about the images of blackness being beautiful and that darkness being wonderful and how we need to sort of weed out some of the images that we put place on ourselves and society that actually reflect the way that black and brown folks are treated because we've internalized it. I don't think a lot of people really think about the language, but language is so powerful. So when I use references, I attempt to not use terms like blacklisted or things that put black in the negative light or brown in the negative light and focus on the things that are positive about darkness. If it wasn't dark, we wouldn't be able to sleep, right? We all operate within these internalized assumptions and presumptions about people who look or sound different from, from us. And it's sad that we have to overcompensate sometimes. You've worked nearly every single continent on the, on the planet. How was that dynamic uh, when you were in other countries? And uh, how did that play out? That's an interesting question because I felt like for the first time ever, that my skin color and my clarity of English was to my benefit. So I was accepted and embraced so much in different countries that it made me want to just almost do that forever. But that's kind of hard. (laughs) It's a hard job to be doing international public health for a lifetime. After becoming a practitioner, did you set up a practice? What were you doing? Well, I worked in different practices, actually. First, I took myself to Peru and did a a self-Spanish immersion so that I could get prepared to serve Spanish-speaking patients. So I did that prior to moving to Florida for about four and a half, five months. So my first contract was in a woman's prison. So, so that was really interesting. And the head doctor was Indian and she was brilliant. And I learned a lot from her. So that, that was my first job as a nurse practitioner. I was covering somebody's maternity leave or FMLA, something like that. And this then- is in, This is in South Florida? Yes. So lots of Miami Vice type stuff? I had access to all their rap sheets, but I didn't look at a single one because I didn't want it to affect my care or the way that I treated the person for their exam when they came into the clinic which is inside the prison. It was interesting because 
many of them were sort of taken aback with the way that I treated them with warmth and comfort or that I touched them. I heard quite frequently, you're the first medical person to touch me or to examine me fully. That's an issue. I'm not your judge. I'm your provider. I'm your practitioner. I didn't say anything. I was like, oh, okay. Sorry to hear that. And you don't know if they're telling you the truth or not. But I heard it so many times that you had to believe somebody. But yeah, I just stayed away from looking at whatever they were accused of or why ever they were in there. I didn't think that I could do that long term only because I would carry in like, I'm kind of hooked on chapstick, but I would carry that in my pocket and forget and you're not allowed to have anything in the prison and it was considered contraband. So I made a mistake a couple times. And one time I accidentally took my cell phone in, which is a felony. So- <laughs> Did you get caught? <laughs> well, they check you at the door. I forgot because I just had it in my jacket. I was cold or something. It was a cold day or something. And I had it in my jacket and I forgot to empty it. And it was always out of innocence. But then I ended up having like my car searched. And, you know, oh, wow. Like, and then from there, I worked in an HIV primary care clinic. And I worked in a couple private practices because my end goal was really to work in this underserved area, this FQHC primary care and I thought that was really just going to be my end job. But you needed three years of experience before they would even look at you because you practiced autonomously. Like you have your own panel, you work side by side physicians, but they don't necessarily see your patients or interact with your patients unless you ask them for their opinion or something like that. So you have to have a minimum of three years practice to get in there. What's, so one, what, Sorry, what's, what's FQHC you said? Yeah. So federally qualified health center. So oh, okay. a center that is connected to a safety net hospital and serves underserved and has like sliding scale and a homeless patient wouldn't pay for a visit or depending on your income, you pay $2 up to okay. $75 for a visit as your copay. But now since the exchange, a lot more people have insurance than before. So the, the uninsured is a lot less, but I wanted purposely to work in an underserved area with a diverse population. So that was my goal. Why did you want to work in that kind of setting for underserved populations? My goal in life was never to make a bunch of money. I just, my goal is live out my purpose. I think also I tend to look at what does a society need, not just what I want out of life or what brings me joy, but maybe that's some Indianness in me. Like, what is your duty? What is your duty to society and to the cause? Like I mentioned before, like a little bit about the underdog. To wrap this section off, I wanted to go back to your career as an international um, health sector professional. What do you think the American healthcare system might learn from the experiences of other countries? Well, I think that's a loaded question. <laughs> but I think primarily, I think they can learn more from the emphasis on the circle and the village versus the individual and a more systems approach versus an individualized approach because I don't even know if you can call it a system because one system doesn't know what another system is doing. If you go to one hospital and then you go to another hospital, unless they have the same 
electronic health record software, you don't see what happened in the other health system. And it can actually affect the person's health outcomes because they may be compromised and not able to tell you what happened before. Or they may not be able to speak because they just had a stroke and they can't tell you their allergies or and the person with them doesn't know either or can't remember. I don't know that other countries are so advanced in their software either that all their systems are connected, but they tend to have national systems. Like, And that's one thing actually I miss about working in the international sector is that when we did do projects and initiatives, once they were adopted, they were taken up by the whole country. I'll give you an example. I mean, I think everybody knows But I I just want to highlight that while the U.S. is often put on a pedestal, it has one of the worst, if not the worst, maternal mortality rate of industrialized nations. And it seems like we're in the current environment that we're going to be even worse if the recent changes continue and we don't halt them. So it just feels like the U.S. is going sort of opposite to global trends. And I I often say this to friends and family that I tend to look, instead of talking about developing and developed countries, I tend to think about the U.S. as like a rowdy teenager with uncontrollable hormones. And India, for example, is like the great grandfather, you know, and it's it's really, it's like, it's hard to compare. Like, how do you compare an ancient society to one that's only been around for a short time, a minute? compared to how long the other country has been around. So I think it's hard and it's difficult to simplify, but I feel like I see them as two different worlds and different values and priorities. It does take a village. And however, the emphasis in the U.S. is the individual benefit. And if we don't grow past that, the system will continue to be fragmented and disease focused. And one of the things that nurse practitioners kind of bring to the table is this holistic approach, like you said. And I, there are pockets of village-based care that are exemplars, but they're few and far between. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad you brought up that example about maternal health. That's something that always, 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 always shocks me is the level, the, the rates of maternal mortality in, in this country, and that they're getting worse. Uh, uh, this was a subject of discussion for this podcast uh, a couple of weeks back. And another big, I think, indicator is what's happened with COVID. For some reason, the infection rates and mortality rates in this country have just been so much higher than other parts of the world. And why that is, is beyond the scope of our discussion here. So let us take a break and we will be right back. You are listening to Mental Health Trailblazers, Psychiatric Nurses Speak Up, brought to you by the SAMHSA Minority Fellowship Program at the American Nurses Association. The stigma about mental health or substance abuse issues is particularly prevalent in underrepresented racial and ethnic groups. One way to overcome that stigma is to recruit more nurses from all underrepresented communities into these fields so that they can focus on eliminating stigma about mental illness and substance use through their leadership in research, practice, education, and policy development. Receiving treatment from someone with a similar background builds trust that can lead to better outcomes. The SAMHSA Minority Fellowship Program at the American Nurses Association is actively engaged in identifying and supporting nursing students seeking graduate degrees in psychiatric mental health nursing. Visit emfp.org to learn more. 
welcome back, Udea. <laughs> uh, I want Thank us to you. now take a deeper dive into your research and your career interests as they manifest today. While you are not a psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner, your dissertation topic for the PhD that you recently completed was on the integration of behavioral health in primary care. Could you tell me more about that? Sure. So I looked at the effect of integrative group visits um, on persons with anxiety disorders in a primary care setting. And I looked at a health system far, far away from me that I didn't have any interaction or contact with the patients to, to reduce the bias greatly or eliminate practically the bias from me looking at the data. And basically, I did a quantitative study. I think nurses oftentimes tend to lean towards qualitative studies. And my previous three theses have all been qualitative. So I wanted to kind of stretch myself a little bit as, as a scientist and um, tackle the quantitative and also try to add to the literature, like more quantitative, so that we have a little bit more data about integrative group medical visits and how how integrative group medical visits can actually sort of help level the playing field for where you can do more of the holistic approach and offer different non-medicine suggestions or treatment and, and still be inside the mainstream medical model. So like I said, this, this is happening in different pockets of the country, but it's not anything that's standardized. So I wanted to look at it to contribute to the literature for and hopefully make the case for why it should be standardized. What were some of your findings? So I think the most important finding was that it increased access to care and decreased emergency department visits because they were the emergency department visits that were determined to be anxiety episodes and not anything that was related to cardiac or pulmonary or other need for hospitalization were lower in those accessing behavioral health and in particular those in the integrative group visits and part of that was statistically significant not all of it and i won't get into the weeds but i think all of it was clinically significant if that makes sense so the numbers were in the direction that I was hypothesizing, but they weren't necessarily at a level where you would say, okay, we have to change everything and go this way. I think that really points to the fact that there's a lot of other factors with diverse underserved patients that come into play. There's no magic wand. Integrative group visits isn't going to solve everything. You need legal aid, you need social worker, you need you need a team approach. You need to change some of these neighborhoods. Like you need to put a grocery store <laughs> on the corner instead of three liquor stores and a, and a snack store. If you could paint a picture for us or tell a story to illustrate exactly what that integrated behavioral health um, intervention might look like for a patient that might come in from an underserved, from a marginalized community? So that actually looks different in different places, but the most common modality that's used in integrative group visits is mindfulness meditation. 
And so I chose to study groups that were integrating mindfulness meditation into their group. So basically it's a biomedical visit where there's a practitioner and a behaviorist together with a group of patients. It could be eight patients. It could be 10. It could be more if you're doing like hybrid or Zoom or something like that. And they may have a common diagnosis. They could all have anxiety. And in my case, they all were part of a chronic pain and wellness group. And the the patients that I, the the data that I looked at all had a comorbidity of anxiety. So in some ways, it wasn't a super clean sort of perspective research. It was retrospective. So I was looking at things that already happened. I had no influence on the the intervention whatsoever. So it was all retrospective. I was looking at this data from visits they had attended, how many they attended, and how many ED visits they had over the year, what was it for the year prior, and then what was it at the end of the year after they started going to these visits. So it was basically mindfulness meditation in the beginning and the end. There were also sort of holistic discussions that were integrated. So every visit is a little bit different because it depends on what the patients are asking and want. It's a combination of having a provider there for one or two hours, however long the visit is, plus a behaviorist, having discussions, doing activities, having peer support, and really kind of getting into questions and answers that you wouldn't get in a 15-minute visit. And at the same time, you've got this two-hour block. So say you see 10 patients in two hours, you haven't lost any revenue because you've seen 10 patients and you've seen them under their particular diagnosis. So you've provided them an opportunity to have chair yoga or or meditation, mindfulness, or there's also group visits that have acupuncture or group visits that integrate discussions around herbs or um, nutrition and things like that. So it can be a variety of things. And I used to run these visits myself where I was working. It not only benefits your patients, but it also benefits the practitioner because you feel a a little more sense of connection to what you're doing and the patients and you get to know them and you get to know them outside of sort of the individual interaction. You get to see how they interact with other people. Are they more introverted? Are they more extroverted? Are they someone you have to facilitate to like give other people space to speak? How are they absorbing the information? There's a lot of things that will tell you about a person that you can see in the group or in the village that you don't see one-on-one it's like a win-win. There's no downsides except scheduling may be a little tricky, but we have technology for that, right? You can schedule everybody at one o'clock and they show up and they're coded for their diagnosis and you have a template for the, for the documentation. And then you take a break and then you see another group of 20. I know one of my colleagues, who's one of my mentors and I a role model for group visits, uh, Dr. Jeff Geller in Massachusetts, he turned his whole practice into a group visit practice. He has a colleague who does the individual visit. So he has a group visit for everything. From your experience and where, where you were working, how did the patients respond? Did they like it? Did they did demand for this go up? It did, but again, we're going back to the systems issue. There were other practitioners that were interested, but it wasn't built into the system. And because it's a health system, it was a little trickier to navigate. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to study a health system who actually 
was able to do this for more than a decade, probably 15 years, because they were able to make it work and and keep going. Since I was the only practitioner, it was difficult because in terms of having the space and having a commitment from the leadership, they went great. And we did sort of a qualitative project to look at some of the data. Nurse actually reviewed what we had and saw that it was all good. Everything seemed to improve. Not everybody's a group person either. So you you don't take away the individual visit necessarily, but you create an opportunity for access. So one of the issues with behavioral health is the amount of time that it takes a patient to get into a visit. And telehealth has taken care of a lot of that. But on the other hand, if you have another access point where they can actually see their primary, because oftentimes patients don't want to see an additional provider. They want to go to their primary for behavioral health. So if there's a warm handoff, if there's a behaviorist right there and the primary care practitioner knows the behaviorist and they're in the building and there's a crisis and you have to go to the next patient, then the behaviorist can be with that patient. Different challenges, but at the end of the day, the more behavioral health access, the better the health outcomes. That's what I got out of it. What is the argument for implementing this kind of integration into the system so that health outcomes are improved, lives are saved? How, in the long run, would it be cost-effective for the healthcare system? Yeah, I think, I mean, it takes a little bit of investment upfront in terms of organizing and planning, but if you fail to plan, you plan to fail, right? (laughs) So, and and everything takes, anything good takes a little bit of time and takes a little bit of investment. So I think the actual health outcomes is, is worth it because you're, you're saving, for example, If you have really high anxiety, and anxiety has surpassed depression, by the way, globally, for a global burden of disease. And so this is another reason why I wanted to look at anxiety specifically. But if you feel like your heart is racing and you're, you're having a panic attack, you run to the emergency room. If you are tapped in to a, a primary care provider and a behaviorist, and you have access to them, and you don't have to wait a month for an appointment, then you're not going to use the emergency room. In this particular study, I didn't go into cost because then that would have been another study, apparently. But the cost of an emergency room visit was like $3,000 a pop. The math is not difficult. If, if we can reduce inappropriate emergency room use by having the proper village model, healthcare, whatever, yoga for primary care set up, then this country would save a ton, a ton, a ton of money. Does this country want to save a ton of money? Do they want to have less emergency room use? I don't know, because then that would decrease hospitalizations and then maybe the hospital wouldn't make as much money. I I don't know. But I think in particular, this is an important intervention for underserved because The safety net hospitals are funded from the government who get a tranche of money to to serve the underserved in these catchment areas. And so safety net hospitals serve all income patients, but 
they are placed in areas where underserved or previously redlined districts can access them. And so if you have other options that are healthier and more interesting and fun and actually help the person to grow and get better and become more self-reliant and less reliant on meds and doing more movement therapy or water-based therapy or things like that, then then you're actually like creating a healthier society. Like, isn't that what we want? That's one of the reasons COVID sort of just lashed out. Mother nature basically lashed out at us because we're, we're not taking care of ourselves and we're not taking care of the planet. And there's payback for that. One final question in this section before we take another break. And this is about addressing health disparities. I was listening to a radio show that you did in 2020 during the height of the pandemic, and you were discussing you know, health disparities, health inequities. And one of your suggestions for uh, reducing these disparities and inequities was a suggestion that healthcare practices, especially those who work with the underserved, secure a legal aid attorney mm-hmm. to provide mm-hmm. low-income patients legal advice. So I was struck by that. What is the connection between legal advice and health outcomes for marginalized communities? Well, the connection is really health literacy or literacy in general, because if you have a low level of literacy, you may not know why you're being evicted or you may be being evicted for not the right reasons and it reduces your agency. So having a legal aid attorney is very helpful for situations like this. I had uh, I, I've had a few cases actually where the reasons were not necessarily legal, but they just couldn't understand the paperwork. And my writing a letter to support the patient and explain the patient's medical condition helped the case. But having the attorney there from legal aid. And there's grants for this. There's grants for everything. I mean, I think the U.S. government (laughs) has a lot of opportunities for implementing and integrating a legal aid attorney into the system. So the previous practice that I worked at had a grant for a a legal aid attorney, and it was very helpful in in situations like this where the, the patient doesn't necessarily know exactly how to work the system or their English is their second language. Legalese is not easy to navigate, even for the highest educated person. Literacy is paramount. And so that's definitely an intervention that a lot, if not all health systems and, and, and practices that serve the underserved should consider. And this, this would have an impact on the mental health, the psychiatric mental health of patients? I guess of course, having, having, having a home, <laughs> that having a house, you know, having a place to live is the most important thing. Feeling safe and secure is the most important thing to feeling at ease, right? To your mental health. So it would be great if, because grants really aren't the solution. Getting that line item in the budget is, is the solution. You are listening to season two of Mental Health Trailblazers, Psychiatric Nurses Speak Up. 
showcasing the inspiring journeys of emerging nurse scientists addressing the unmet substance use, psychiatric mental health challenges facing marginalized communities in America today. The SAMHSA Minority Fellowship Program at the American Nurses Association is a federally funded program granting fellowship awards to nurses of all underrepresented racial and ethnic groups who are pursuing either a master's or a doctoral degree in psychiatric mental health nursing. To learn more about this program and how to apply, visit emfp.org. So welcome back, Udea, and I want us to take a break from some of this heavy discussion and lighten up our conversation just a little bit. We have um, what has become one of our favorite sections, the rapid fire questions, where we seek tweet-sized sound bites as responses from our guests. So I'm going to start by asking you, who would be on your guest list for your dream dinner party? <laughs> I don't think that's a that's a question I ever been posed. Um, Do you host dinner parties? Yes, and I have been known to mix company, <laughs> mm-hmm. and uh, not everybody is comfortable with that. But that tends to be my mo. Um, what would I do? Uh, I would probably have a progressive dinner party around the world. I would go and visit <laughs> all the people that I love and care about in the spaces that they're comfortable in and and just jet from here to there. How about that? Okay, but if it was at your <laughs> home, if you were at home, who would you want there? Like three people, three like big names or- Apart from family? Apart from family. Okay. Um, let's see, maybe Billie Holiday. Uh-huh. Shakira. <laughs> Okay. And Tich Nhat Han for a meditation. <laughs> okay. Very nice. Okay. It sounds like a strange dinner party. <laughs> no, but I, I love, yeah, Shakira and Billy Holiday. Um, yes, absolutely. So some fun, some laughter, some shaking, some dancing, um, but some meditative moments before eating. And what would be on the menu? The menu. Okay, so some of my... Favorite foods, probably like a papaya salad from mm. Thailand, nopales from Mexico, uh, sauteed okra from India, and a mango lassi, and maybe a little tiramisu from Italy for dessert. Okay, very, very nice. <laughs> and I know, I know where I'm going to go this evening after I finish. <laughs> Okay. You're going to fly to Florida? <laughs> well, no, there's a there's a fantastic little Thai restaurant down the road. So oh, uh, papaya okay. salad. Yeah, if, um, the, if the Thai restaurant doesn't have papaya salad, uh, that's like, you know, that's not a real Thai restaurant. I'm not going there. Well, going back to Asia, what is your greatest pet peeve with the way South Asian Indians are portrayed by Western media and the Western film industry? I don't, I don't have any pet peeves around the way Indians are portrayed when it comes to medical, because it's usually they're smart (laughs) and good, which is not a bad stereotype. Um, But I do, I wouldn't say it's a pet peeve, but I'm not, you know, I think there, there is this thing around the caste system where it's actually kind of like the class system here. And I've made that sort of comparison 
over the years, ever since I was small, and it's playing out more and more. And now there's more books about it and, and more discussion about it. Um, and, you know, there's this sort of hang up um, about the caste system. And there are there are so many things that happen in this country and other countries that that are in that same vein of, sure. of discrimination. And and so I wouldn't say it's a pet peeve, but I think we often have to look at the man or woman or person in the mirror um, yes, before we like judge like, and, and I'm not a fan of the caste system or class system or, and those are not the systems that I'm interested in. <laughs> I'm interested, I'm interested in leveling the playing field for the, for the underdogs. Yeah. I think uh, as human beings, we, we seem to enjoy organizing ourselves into these hierarchies of. Yes. Um, not a seems, fan of that. Yeah. It's, it seems to be in our DNA, unfortunately. And your advice for non-South Asian folks on what not to say when they meet somebody of South Asian Indian descent for the first time. Go back to your country. <laughs> oh my goodness. Have, have people said that to you? All my life. All my life. Hmm. All my life. And in fact, uh, I almost got run over by a truck uh, when I was biking uh, with the same yeah, commentary. Mm-hmm. What did you say back to him or to the or her? Oh no, 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 no! You choose your battles. You know, like you don't you don't say anything in that situation. You don't know who has a gun. You don't. I'm very cautious and aware of my surroundings, and I'm careful in public places and venues. And yeah, I'm not. I don't think I'm ready to meet my maker. <laughs> if and when the movie version of your life is made. Who, which actor would you choose to play you? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. I've never thought of that either. And I don't know that I have an answer for that. But there is an Indian actress that I like who's super funny. Um, and uh, so maybe her, but we don't look anything alike. So <laughs> I, don't know, she? I don't know if that would work. There is an actor. There's an Indian actress that some of my cousins told me that I look like. But I, for the life of me, can't remember the name. And okay. um but the actress that comes to mind is uh, Deepika uh, Padukone. Um, she played. You can see it on Netflix. Piku, check out. Okay. Piku. Check out Piku. It's funny. It's okay. funny. And that's my other medicine: laughter. <laughs> okay. What about Bollywood films? Bollywood films. No, I mean, I, you know, again, that's sort of like a. It, that's interesting. I mean, I do see some Bollywood films. I guess I don't know if that's considered a Bollywood film, but. I'm from Kerala, which is in the south. Mm-hmm. And so Kerala is actually known, really well known in the country for the quality of their films. Mm-hmm. So just giving a shout out to my home state. Where yeah. I was born. yeah. Oh, funny, funny story about acting, though. When I was in college, I almost wanted to major in theater, but I could never get into a role because they always listed so many black, so many white and my senior year, they put on Cleopatra and everybody's like, Udaya, Udaya, like you should try out for Cleopatra. I'm like, no, it's too late. You are listening to Mental Health Trailblazers, Psychiatric Nurses Speak Up, brought to you by the SAMHSA Minority Fellowship Program at the American Nurses Association. Listen to all of our episodes at emfp.org 
the SAMHSA MFP at ANA's YouTube channel, or on your preferred podcast app. For more information about the MFP or to provide your feedback, email us at mfp at ana.org. Look for us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Then click subscribe, like, or follow us. So welcome back, Dr. Udea Thomas. We are nearing the end of our discussion here, and I wanted to turn now to your engagement with the Minority Fellowship Program. If you could tell me, how did you find out about the MFP? Well, I owe that one to Dr. Patty Wilson. We knew each other from my Baltimore days, worked together on a research project, and we stayed in touch over the years. And mm-hmm. she, along with my previous boss at Japigo, had been encouraging me for years to get my PhD. I didn't really think I could get in because I was in my head that I wasn't considered a minority because people tell you that Indians are Caucasian, what? And things like that. So I, I even, you know, in the past when I had applied for scholarships, I, I could go, I could do scholarships based on merit, like when I was going to school, but I couldn't apply as a minority. But then really? I realized, yeah, because Indians weren't considered a minority back then because of the waves of immigration, having higher professions only immigrate from India. And we didn't really fall into that category because my father was a pastor and we didn't have that kind of income that doctors and engineers had. But that was that was the case back then. And so then then I realized, well, like everybody who's applying for this is a nurse. So we're kind of all in the same income bracket. So that has nothing to do with income. So I finally took the plunge and applied Again, I, I, it was to my surprise to be accepted because I wasn't planning to be a psychiatric nurse practitioner. I wasn't planning to do that certificate. I had enough like degrees and certificates for my, for my taste, and I didn't want to pay for another <laughs> PhD, but I was accepted, and I'm so grateful to the MFP because I was accepted in my first year, and I was funded for the entire five years. So I'm really blessed I don't think that's very common. Um, I'm not sure uh, if it is, but I don't think so. And so I really owe a lot of gratitude to Patty and to the MFP and my mentors and advisees, advisors there. And it, it's just been amazing. The resources, the ITIs, the intensive training institutes that we had uh, seeing speakers from all over the U.S. and various leadership roles and learning from them and and also international as well. And some of the, the fellows who were, that came from various different countries and, and all over the US. So I it was extremely rich experience. I, I always promote the MFP to anyone who has an inkling of going into behavioral health or mental health and has a nursing background or even like psychology or one of the other arms that SAMHSA funds to move forward. And I'll be sharing the opportunity to my NOVA students as well when the next applications come around. And to wrap up our discussion, Udea, I want to take you back to India, to your roots, being born in in Kerala, your roots in southern India, arriving in the U.S. as a toddler, growing up in a rural community in the United States, then parachuting yourself you know, all over the world as a public health expert and now training new generations of mental health practitioners in uh, these new approaches that, you know, your research and your findings and your general personal instinct has driven you towards. Did you imagine that you would be where you are today 
back then when you were starting your college uh, journey? And what is your vision for the future? No, I, I never imagined that. <laughs> I'm hoping this is my last pit stop, so to speak, but maybe not because you never say never. I would really like to get some of my findings out there and some of the things, the way that I see like Kerala's multimodal system of being able to go see a homeopathic physician or Ayurvedic physician or an allopathic physician of of your choice in the public health system be somehow replicated here. Have Kerala's model, the state where I was born in India, have that kind of model for the diverse and growingly more diverse population of the United States. They are calling for different ways of healing and we're not providing it apart from these exemplars that I mentioned before. I don't know if you know the phrase, but Albert Einstein said, the doctor of the future will give no medicine, but will involve the patient in the proper use of food, fresh air and exercise. And I just think that really says it all. That's a very nice way to end our conversation. We need to get away from the prescriptions and we need to eat better and breathe better and live better and be healthier. Thank you very much for your time. It's been a pleasure talking to you this evening. Thank you, Andreas. I really appreciate you. And uh, thank you so much. Thank you to the MFP and to all the leadership there. Dr. Outlaw and Janet Jackson and all the folks there. So thank you so much. We will definitely pass on your um, your sentiments. You are most welcome, Udea. And that does it for this episode of Mental Health Trailblazers, Psychiatric Nurses Speak Up. I hope you've enjoyed our discussion and I look forward to you joining us on future episodes. This is the Minority Fellowship Program at the American Nurses Association podcast featuring nurse scientists addressing the psychiatric and mental health issues affecting underrepresented communities across America. You can always find us online at emfp.org and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. The views expressed by the speakers and hosts do not necessarily reflect the official policies of the Department of Health and Human Services, nor does mention of trade names, commercial practices, or organizations imply endorsement by the U.S. government.